Mozart had been in Vienna since May of that year and was, you know, moving around town and, you know, trying to make a scene. Welcome to You Ain't a Woofin, your weekly storytelling-powered time machine. I'm Valerie. And I'm Amy Jo. Welcome back to 2024. I mean, Happy New Year. Yeah. Um, It's a new year. Yeah. Hope that you all enjoyed our last episode, episode six, which was... Closing out 1959. That was a fun year. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, like horrible. Sounds terrible. It was a fun year to cover for the podcast. (laughs) Creepily plastic and scary. Yeah, it was was good. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I did realize that I made a mistake about the number of cluttered children, and I feel like I doubled down couple times uh they had four children two that were in the home that night and two that were not they were a family of six okay so anyway i just wanted to mention that because yeah that's confusing and kind of a big deal to get wrong well (laughs) (laughs) at least i mean on the on a positive note like at least there aren't just like two missing cluttered children out there that right nobody cared about if anyone has been worried for the last week about where those i was i was a little bit (laughs) rest assured and they don't exist so we're we're all good cool with that nice and yeah we have um a good show today 1781 i was not sure how that was going to feel to research um and it i it's been a good one i think it's yeah so fascinating it's kind of hard to as like a lay person to research Uh uh-huh those years because everything is all in your face is just american revolution patriotic (laughs) the propaganda and like it's so intense Uh uh-huh so it is. I, it was a struggle to kind of find some <laughs> other things that were happening, and um, but I it was really really interesting because it like that didn't the American Revolution was not happening in everywhere yeah in like an isolation tank there was conflict brewing and revolution mm-hmm. happening and um, yeah I went I did not <laughs> go against the stream. I floated downstream and went with a Revolutionary War story for next week. Great, because I didn't do that. Okay, cool. (laughs) I took it easy and floated downstream. Yeah, no, I don't. That's not my style. (laughs) How can I make this as hard as possible? Oh, I do do love the mantra of, like, how can I do less right now? Uh, So I, I, I applaud that. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I spent a good number of years 
walking upstream and I'm not doing it anymore. (laughs) No, no, I'm not trying to do that either. I just wanted to find something that I was interested in that didn't make me like barf in my head. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was afraid of this year, but well, you guys be the judge, I guess. Let us know. But should we get to the timeline twist? I think it's time for the timeline twist. All right. Okay, well, um, welcome to the 1781 timeline twist. This is our first foray into the 18th century. And, like I said, I was kind of nervous about it, but it turned out okay. Yeah. Yeah, so... 18th century music. Oh, yes. I have some ideas for some music later in this episode, too. I'll put it in my editing notes. (laughs) Excellent. So, 1781 had a case of the Mondays. Started on Monday of the Gregorian calendar. Garfieldian chance again. I know. Yeah. And uh, in Roman numerals, it is written M-D-C-C-L-X-X-X-I. So, breaking it down, M is a thousand, as we remember. Yeah, pretty good. That's pretty good. Awesome. All right. I'm getting good at this. You said we yeah, would learn seven, and I am. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna break it down every time them. because I think I'm gonna make a poster. Okay. Eventually. Yeah. Uh so the D C C is seven hundred. Yeah. The D is five hundred, then you got two C's which equal a hundred each. Then the L X X X I is eighty one. L is 50, X is 10, so three times, that's 30, and then 1 equals 81. So we're mathing. Okay, so I have a question. They're called Roman numerals. Mm-hmm. Why? They're actually letters. Why are they called Roman numerals? <sighs> Curious minds want to know. Sorry. We can edit this out. I, I will answer that on a future episode. Okay, next time I twist, I want to know. What do they say? Let's, what do they say? Let's park it. Let's oh, put yeah, the, put that parking, the parking lot. lot. Thank you. We're going to put that in the parking lot. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, major events. Um, 1781 Revolutionary War is happening in the United States. Oh, really? That's a, I hadn't heard. <laughs> we, yeah, encountered that over and over in our research. But I am starting with a different major event only because it happened on January 1st. Mm. So, English cast iron arch bridge called the Iron Bridge was opened on New Year's Day of 1781. Oh. It is the first major cast iron bridge in. It is among the first of the major cast iron bridges in the world. It crossed the River Severn, adjacent to a ferry crossing. So there was already a ferry crossing established between Maidley and Bent Hall in England. And so they put the bridge right next to that ferry crossing. And according to Wikipedia, 
Quote, today the bridge is celebrated as a symbol of the Industrial Revolution. Why did the fairies need a bridge? Don't they have wings? <laughs> Fairy, the boat. Oh. Fairy boat. F-E-R-R-Y. Got it. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting yeah. to put it right next to... Because, you know, a ferry crossing probably needs different landscape than a bridge might. Anyway, that's how they did it. And I have two pictures that will be on the blog. One is a modern day picture of the this bridge. And the other is actually a painting that was done during the construction of the bridge, which I think is super cool. You'll be able to find that on the site. Oh, yeah. Soon. The painting is like... <laughs> kind of haunting yeah it's cool i just Mm -hmm. like it was somebody set up their paints right next to the you know right next to the river severn Mm -hmm. while it was going up and kind of a cool snapshot from 1781 so the battle of cowpens occurred in january in south carolina when the American Continental Army beat British forces and the Revolutionary War continues. Dun, dun, dun. In March of 1781, I added months this time because I was just randomly shouting out facts for our first episodes. I thought maybe people might want to know when these things happens, but or happened. Um, In March, the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union entered into force. And I will let you know what that means in a second. The Articles of Confederation were an agreement between the 13 states of the United States that were previously referred to as the 13 colonies. You've heard that before. So the Articles of Confederation were debated from July 1776 to November 1777. They were finalized by Congress in November of 1777. And then they entered into force on March 1st, 1781. So what does that mean? It is a legal term also called coming into force or commencement. Oh, God. Okay. Well, yeah. go America. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And it is the exact moment at which laws and legislation, regulations, treaties, and other instruments of legality gain their legal power. So it's like it's words on a page until they breathe it into life. It's, it's enacted. Yeah. Coming. Yeah. Which I thought was a cool concept. Um, this is not the Zodiac back. However, something happened in 1781. The planet Uranus was discovered by Sir William Herschel. He originally named it Georgium Sidus after the current king of England, King George III. But he must have ultimately decided that Uranus really rolls off the tongue. So they changed it. I know you're probably going to talk about that. I know that the planets are named after this mythology, right? There was some uh, pushback for Herschel naming it after the King of England when, like, people around the world were like, hey, this is the first planet ever discovered. Ever. 
<laughs> and the names for the planets have follow this pattern, and so that's how they eventually. I'll go. I'll go into it in the zodiac. Yeah, back, gotcha. Right? Yeah. I'm gonna leave all that to you, but I did. Yeah. I felt like I should mention it. But yeah, no, it was like it should be part like, of the timeline I'm twist. Pay homage to my like whatever, my monarch, <laughs> and everybody else was like. Mm. It's not England's planet, yo. Mm -hmm. It's not George's planet. It's not like the same as just quote unquote discovering some new land and naming it after the monarch the way that they did with right. the exploring that was going on. Yeah. It's in the sky. It's everybody's <laughs> planet. Yeah. No, okay, this interesting. Yeah. Um we have mentioned actually this one in a previous episode. I feel like it was last, yeah, our, 1959. Um, Los Angeles is found was founded in California, and they called it the City of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels of Porcincula. It's nice. But that yeah, Los Angeles for short. <laughs> Okay, the French invaded the island of Tobago, which was held by the British at the time as part of the Anglo-French War. Mm. Back to the American Revolution. The Battle of Chesapeake, the Battle of Groton Heights, and the Battle of Utah Springs take place along with many, 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 many other skirmishes and sieges. <laughs> Yep. So just one more. Um, September 29th through October 19th, the siege or battle of Yorktown took place. And this one's kind of pivotal. So that's why I singled it out in Virginia. And battlefields.org describes it this way. So, quote, Outnumbered and outfought during a three-week siege in which they sustained great losses, British troops surrendered to the Continental Army and their French allies. The Battle of Yorktown proved to be the decisive engagement of the American Revolution. The British surrender forecast the end of British rule in the colonies and the birth of a new nation called the United States of America. Yeah. End quote. Suck it, Cornwallis. <laughs> we got a new nation over here. Thumbing our nose at you. Mm-hmm. Well, for good or for ill, that's what yeah. happened. Um, okay, so this next point has to do with slavery. This is a story that we both kind of saw when we first started reaching or researching for this year and we kind of talked about how it's just kind of too fucked up and atrocious and vile to cover but i did want to mention it like it, yeah. we, it's not that we're going to steer away from stories like this but this is a podcast for entertainment i encourage everybody to read about this but it, this is just a straight up tragedy and there's n nothing funny about that but I did want to include it in the major events because it happened. It's completely gross. So I want it to not be left out. And then I will get to the lifestyles and culture and we'll try to lighten it up a bit. But in November of 1781, the Zong massacre occurred. And just briefly put, 
English slavers on the slave ship Zong threw over 125 human beings who were African slaves overboard to conserve supplies for the journey to Liverpool. Subsequently, the owners attempted to file insurance claims to recoup the attributed value of these murdered human beings. Yeah, it's disgusting. Just it's like an insurance fraud with so, people. So gross. Super gross. <sighs> yeah. So, definitely everybody go read about it. I feel like, you know, what they say is, if you don't learn about history, it repeats. And I believe in that. So go find out the specifics, but we're going to take a cleansing breath and move <laughs> on to lifestyles and culture. According to the website, an agreeable tyrant fashion after the revolution, quote, the 1780s saw the increasing popularity of the round gown. <laughs> in which the front panel of the dress was filled in with more of the fabric instead of being worn over the exposed petticoat. It's like you've seen those dresses where it's on the sides and mm -hmm. around the back. Yeah. <clears throat> but for some reason, there's like a strip in the front that just shows the petticoat. No, it's like, it's like um, curtains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what this makes me think of. Like... It's like that Carol Burnett where they're actually wearing <laughs> the curtains with the rods. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old reference, but anyway, Carol yeah. Burnett's Carol Burnett's hilarious. Yes. So, um, continuing the quote, uh, men continued to wear coat, waistcoat, and breeches, sometimes matching two or all three of the fabrics. Oh, they kept on doing that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> continued wearing those. Nice. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Same. Breeches. Uh, trousers. Yes. And short jackets were sometimes worn by working men. Yeah, breeches. I, that just cracked me up that they said, like, I feel like they're talking about two-piece or three-piece suits that are all in the actual same fabric. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Have you seen um, Our Flag Means Death? Have you seen that show? <laughs> no. It's like... <laughs> well, I won't spoil it, but... That's what I'm picturing. Steve okay. Bonnet. Coat, vest, breeches, all I in mean, the same. I mean, usually the vest is finery, different. Finery fabric, yes. And then, <laughs> you know, the stockings and the all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you got to have them. It just seems weird. The like, rough I'll... and the cuffs. You got to do it. All of it. All the same, though, like seems like you know carpeting an entire home in the same carpet, like including the kitchen and the bathrooms, just like carpet everywhere. Like a pink kitchen or something. Like well. I, but like, aren't men's suits all the same fabric nowadays? Like a three-piece suit just is all the same fabric, right? Oh, maybe. Don't you like? I feel like the vest is. A contrasting color. Like a tuxedo, maybe. Yeah. I'm not super versed on fashion, especially men's fashion. Yeah. I mean... Anyway, it was 1781. What would Steve Harvey wear? <laughs> I, I don't know. Anywho, okay, well, 
Yeah. Okay. They were fancy. We know that. They they had it was their finery and lots you... of layers and all like yeah. high maintenance and the bazillion little buttons and like they all had to have like help. The aristocrats had to have help getting dressed. <laughs> yeah. A dresser. Special a... button hook. Do they call those things? grooms? Okay, so music. I usually include that. In Falkirk, Scotland, the first bagpipes competition was held. Nice. Love a good bagpipe. I'm a fan. Um, in Granard, Gra- uh, Gran- Granard, sorry, this is an Irish word, <laughs> and I did look it up. Uh, Granard, Ireland, in the north of County Longford, held its first annual harp festival. So, grab oh. your hula hoop, your bikini top, and put some flowers in your hair. You go to festivals. a music festival. Yes, love it. Do you, have you, do you, are you a music festival lady? Well, I've been to some music festivals. One time I was at Lollapalooza and um, a piece of baloney that was like warmed <laughs> by the sun flew out of the sky and landed on my left breast and then peeled off and onto oh the ground. Oh my God. So, uh, I think... <sighs> Baloney. Gross. Like Soundgarden was on. I don't remember. (laughs) Somebody was throwing baloney. People are throwing water bottles. I'm glad I didn't get hit by one of those. Ooh, I've been to, yes, an outdoor. It wasn't a festival, but it was an outdoor show. I'm not doing that. I'm not down there in the mud mosh pit. And then, yeah, just like flying processed meat was. (laughs) I'd rather the baloney than a water bottle. Oh, a hundred, but <laughs> also, last time I wore a bikini top to a music festival in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of, I've been to Bonnaroo once. I, way back when we first got to Lawrence, they had Omega Fest. I went to that. Uh-huh. And yeah. after that, we had Wakarusa Fest for a number of years, and I think that moved somewhere south, but... Anyway, my favorite is the Bluegrass Festival that I sometimes go to. In Winfield? Yep. Yeah. We went to Pickathon a couple of times out here, and then it got super expensive. I just love that it's actually a harp festival in 1781. Yeah. Harp it up. Mm Mm-hmm. Ben Harper. So I looked up food again. Ooh, excellent. Recipes. <clears throat> I found some a... aspects. Oh. So. No, well, not mentioned in what I'm about to read, but I bet you're right. <laughs> Head cheese. Well, yeah. They Something. used, I'm like, jello wasn't, gelatin wasn't, but it was like marrow, right? Yeah. I That's don't know. how you do an aspect. Okay. Well, I found a website called. Liber Antiquus, which just means means ancient book. And they sell early printed books and manuscripts. And on that site, they listed an English recipe book categorized as a manuscript on paper titled 
F. Norris, her book, 1781. <laughs> and it's listed for $6,800. And it contains 133 numbered recipes with an index, which impressed me. And it has written on the cover of the book in a couple of locations, F. Norris, her book, 1781. So she really, really wanted She's people like, Don't to know. Fucking take my cookbook, bitches. I'm yeah. sick of y'all taking my book of recipes. This is this the is third one book. I've made. It's mine. It's her book. I even put by an which index. I mean me. <laughs> yeah, I love the her book. F. Norris, her book, comma, 1781. Herb, so she dated it. Her book. Oh, my gosh. She dated her book. So they describe the contents of the book. So this is a posting on their website as such. Quote, the manuscript begins with directions on how to make English wines. Among the instructions are recipes for elderflower wine, both Mrs. Godin's way and Mrs. Ireland's way. So she's got her friends' recipes. Um, Mrs. Irish Springs way, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, balm wine, white currant wine, Mrs. Smith's way, which is very good. Birch wine, clary wine, which is a flowering sage, cowslip wine, which is an herb, and British Madeira, which is a wine. For the dried fruits section, they say, quote, there are also recipes for numerous dried fruits, preserves, and pastes made from quince, barberries, plums, peaches, apricots, apples, lemons, gooseberries, pippins, cherries, raspberries, almonds, and walnuts. End What's quote. What's a pippin? That I don't know. Like a bird. What's a barberry? <laughs> oh. I just love that, like, this it's specific like a little line. thing left over on the stool, like, after somebody gets up from <laughs> drinking at the bar. The all bar. day, a little barberry. Like, <laughs> a dingleberry, uh, but bar stool-based. That whole line makes me think how far away we are from just pure food, you know? Oh, it's like right. every kind of fruit or berry that they're making these preserves and pastes from. So the pickle section, quote, among mm. the pickle recipes are those for artichokes, cucumbers, quince, and lemons, end quote. And the dessert recipes, quote, those are especially appealing and they represent a nice cross section of sweets in 18th century England. Included are those for cakes, drops, jumballs, which are like macaroons, shives, which just means slices, slices of what? It doesn't say. <laughs> um, clear cakes, puffs. Ratafia drops. Ratafia is a sweet alcoholic beverage. Flavored butters, creams, candies with almonds, an elderberry rob, which is a condensed syrup, a lemon omelet, which is baked, cheesecake, nun biscuits, queen cakes, seed cake, syllabub, which is a popular dessert drink, and cheap plum cake, paradise pudding, which is eggs, breadcrumbs, brandy, lemon peel, currants, and butter. 
gingerbread, sponge biscuits, and wigs, which has enriched leavened tea cakes. End quote. I feel like it's a bit like a menu from like the canteen, most Eisley cantina. From I know. <laughs> I well, the, some of I'll have a sobok and a, like a triply box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jumballs. Jumballs. Why? I mean, like macaroons always been a funny word to me, but <laughs> compared with jumballs. I know. Yeah. Either. (laughs) I, and some of those asides, like I hope, I added some to this quote because when I read it, I was like, what the fuck is that? What's a shive? What's a jumball? What's an elderberry rob? You know, there's a lot. Nuns biscuits? Who who knows? Queen's cakes? Yeah. Uh Anyway. Uh I think I especially. Those are like goop recipes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, paradise pudding, vagina drops. I mean, none. I like or whatever. <laughs> I like the cheap plum cake. Like yeah, she's frugal. Well, and what's what's her name? <laughs> she's a cheap date. Yeah, oh, she's a cheap and plum. F Norris. She's frugal. F Nor- okay, it's her book. It okay. is her book. Don't touch. God, (laughs) stop touching my book. Her book, 1781. All right, so I do have a recipe, um, and I'm going to read it in the way that this is an entire quote, the entire recipe, the way she wrote it. Below is the recipe for crack nails. (laughs) (laughs) Take half a pound of flour, half a pound of powder sugar, Two eggs, some caraway seeds, mix these together. Take two ounces of butter, melt it to oil in a saucepan, pour it hot on. (laughs) Hot on. Yeah. The spelling is pretty interesting and the capitalization too, but. Is it H A W T? I'm not going to (laughs) judge. I'm not judging F. Norris, her book. (laughs) <laughs> well, oil is spelled O-Y-L. Oh, that was common, I think, in that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's spelling from the time, and then there's n- hardly any punctuation. Lots of commas, actually. But, okay, so pour it hot on, work them together, roll it out with a rolling pin thin, cut it with a tin mold, bake them on tins in a slow oven, Beat the white of an egg with a little white wine. Rub it over them. No, rub them over with a paste brush. It gives them a pretty gloss. Rub the tins with a bit of butter and warm them at the oven before you put them on. End quote. So, <laughs> it's basically... But crack nails? Because crack like, nails. I, I feel like that my theatrical makeup teacher in college might have had a crack nail. He would yeah. always come around and he would like trace his long fingernail. He'd be like, oh, you need to blend more. <laughs> it's spelled, it's spelled it's C-R-A-C-K-N-E-L-L-S. Crack nails. Uh, oh, oh, like the sound of a bell. Like a death knell. A crack yeah. Nail. And 
like a fart. It's the sound of a crack, which is the sound of crack nails. <laughs> crack nails. Um, well, I mean, it sounds like granola bar. It's a. Uh, it's Cookie. just flour, powdered sugar, eggs, and then I. I don't know what caraway seeds taste like, but you blend all that together. Then you fold in the oil and roll it out like a dough. And then she's talking about like using the tins, um, putting butter in them so that it doesn't stick. And she's got like a, that white wine and egg brush, brushing it on the top for a glossy. Yeah. Kind pretty sophisticated. Just an egg wash. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Crack if anyone knows what this is and has eaten them, <laughs> let us know. Well, I think we should make some. Caraway oh. seeds, though, sound, makes me think about, like, everything bagels. I don't... I, I don't what does caraway it. taste like? I have no idea. Isn't that what's in, like, rye bread? Oh. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. Go ahead and write in and tell us how yeah, you know about it. <laughs> Fine. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, actually. Uh, <laughs> Don't write in if you're going to say that. <laughs> okay. Where does a man... I have a joke for you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, where does a mansplainer get his water? <laughs> From a well, actually. <laughs> trying to be clever and think and I no there's no way well actually <laughs> Ew, sorry ah, that's I digress. okay that's I okay digress. I'll take a sip I needed some crack knolls mm-hmm. okay art history this is where oh, I get to. I was hoping, I just took a peek ahead at the photos. I was hoping <laughs> you were going to cover that one because yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, it's a cryptid. No spoilers. No spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Okay. I got a degree in art history and this is the only way I've ever used it. So, so good. tune in, kids. Um, in art movements, we are solidly in the neoclassicism era. This era spanned 100 years, 1750 to 1850. And we're at the very beginning of Romanticism, which went from 1780, so just the year before, to 1850. Obviously, these dates are fluid, but people who looked back, you know, looked at trends, and that's, I'm assuming, how they started outlining these dates. Um, so what do those mean? As outlined on invaluable.com, neoclassicism reflected, quote, a renewed interest in classical antiquity, harmony, simplicity, and proportion, end quote. And romanticism, in contrast, used, quote, imaginative elements, a focus on passion, emotion, and observing the senses, you got a sneak peek at the picture that I'm going to talk about. And there's a lot of emotion in that sucker. Mm. So neoclassicism, just to recap, that's it's like Greek and Roman themes and mythology. 
they painted like current situations, like war scenes, but it all looks very classical, like the Greek and Roman styles. Mm. And romanticism, everything is romanticized, it's less formal. It's not, you know, Washington with his sword pointed, like the one that we covered. It's less formal, and there's emotion, finally, in the subjects. Like, they're not just standing there like a portrait. Mm-hmm. So, to the pictures. I posted a picture of Ariadne Abandoned by Angelica Kaufman. This is dated before 1782. Ariadne is a mythology figure. That's the neoclassical style. Mm-hmm. Pretty formal. Not as formal as they get, but... So, um, my example for the romanticism style is The Nightmare by John Henry Fuseli. And I relate to this, except for the little demon guy li- lying on the figure and the buggy-eyed horse figure, because... I want to do this pose at least once a day and just like dramatically lie on a couch and yeah, yeah, it's full of emotion. I mean, but that's, I don't know. There's like, I just don't see how (laughs) those are the two main elements of this painting. And so like, you're like, I relate to this painting in the, I want to like drape over the edge of my couch. Like there's a bazillion paintings of people on fainting couches and chuslong and all that. I mean, we could do a deep dive on that pose. You're right. You're right. We can, but it's just, I mean, we just have complimentary styles because what appeals to me about this painting (laughs) and I really looked into it as I was researching this year was like, um, it depicts a <laughs> uh, a cryptid figure that was in the popular culture and was kind of coming out of fashion at this age of enlightenment. Uh-oh, but like yeah. it was still believed that if you have sleep paralysis, <gasps> that there was some kind of demon that was sitting on your chest, and what? and or that it was a and it was called the night <gasps> hag or the nightmare. And so that's why there's the horse's head. Oh my god! So it was sometimes pictured as like a little gargoyle or like a horse or whatever, <laughs> and that's where the term nightmare comes from. But it was specifically um, used oh to refer my god. to the cryptid demon responsible for sleep paralysis. Like you know when you like your body is asleep but you wake up and your eyes are open and you yeah, can't move yeah, and yeah. Like, you feel like something's sitting on your chest that's what this painting is about <laughs> okay now you're schooling me on art history <laughs> no okay no I just like I was like a cryptid from 17 I did not know there was so much <laughs> in this painting I was just mentioning it as a style in the style of romanticism but that's awesome I was gonna do. I was gonna try to do the night hag as my, <laughs> as like a cryptid story, but oh, like for yeah, like a um, mystery for this year. It wasn't year. specific to this year. Oh, yeah, but I just thought that was. I so I did a read a bunch of reading this, about this specific painting. painting yeah, it like, like it's it comes yes, up kind yes. of at the top of the list for romanticism, mm-hmm. and I can see why because I, it's a such a departure. From what people have yeah. seen in 1781. I just know that Ed- 
Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, totally freaky for mm-hmm. that time, and I didn't know the etymology of, of the term nightmare. I didn't until either, just so now. That's really interesting to me. Thanks. Yeah, Amy Jo. Makes more sense. <laughs> We're well, here to learn. Yeah. No, this is great. We're, we're learning all the time. Super interesting. Yeah, anyway, that's sorry. okay. Um, go ahead. So just about this painting, now I need to go read all about it because I didn't know any of what you just told me, but uh, smarthistory.org <laughs> says, quote, this, the painting was first displayed at the annual Royal Academy Exhibition in London in 1782, where it shocked, titillated, and frightened the exhibition visitors and critics. End quote. Oh, I'm so titillated. <laughs> I mean, it's such yeah, a huge it's departure. it's very titillating. Yeah. It's very evocative, and it is very racy. Yeah. And, like, they, yeah, a lot of the criticism was about how, like, it was kind of overtly Uh sexual and like for that time absolutely i mean there was emotion if you think about like the pieta michelangelo yeah where mother and child and there's sorrow in it but this is this is different (laughs) right well it's like the root of the word passion is suffering Mm. right it means suffering makes sense Um, love is dead mm -hmm. compassion (laughs) suffering with okay oh boy yeah i have um oh just a little bit of science and then medicine left and then i'll get to the births and deaths but in science besides the discovery of uranus charles messier publishes his final catalog of messier's objects have you ever heard of this it's more so. astronomy than well it is astronomy um oh. it's a set of oh, 110 okay. astronomical objects there's a picture um okay that's so what that he it's he's cataloged these 110 astronomical objects that he's viewed and he named them messier one messier two messier three all the way up to 110 and the compilation picture that I have I that will be on the blog is, it was on Wikipedia, but it, they linked it to Michael A. Phillips's Astro blog. So that's the link that I'm going to put in the sources because I believe he's the one that compiled them into that composition, which is just cool looking. Well, they look like galaxies. Yeah, they're just, well, it just are? says astronomical objects. So it's just different mm. things in the sky. I mean, I would have a poster yeah. of that, honestly. It's just a cool compilation. So it's props really to neat. Michael yeah. A. Phillips, Astro Blog. So also in the stars, uh, Christian Meyer published a catalog of binary stars. There is a picture. It just looks like a massive bright star. But yeah. Binary stars. According to Wikipedia, quote, a binary star or binary star system is a system of two stars that are gravitationally bound to and in orbit with each other. Binary stars in the night sky that are seen as a single object to the naked eye are often resolved using a telescope as separate stars, end quote. Mm-hmm. And I did think the picture was cool. I'm going to put it this on the blog. Cool. 
But some people say that our sun is a part of a binary system with Sirius. What? 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 It's got a cycle. It's like 26,000 year cycle or something. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, man. Have you seen that show, Ancient Aliens? That's where I get all my info. (laughs) Okay. JK. JK. No, no. Um, That's not from Ancient Aliens. Yeah, yeah. it's a great show. It's Um, it's great to fall asleep to. Did I do the bird guy yet? No. No? Okay. Another publication... Ah! Okay. Yeah. Naturalist John Latham published a general synopsis of birds. So just a lot of cataloging of things in the sky. Just wrote them down. Great. Yeah. List of birds. I like a bird, good bird book. Um, okay. So the bird watchers and bird counters, you know? Hell yeah. I love that vibe. Yeah. If I had more time, I'd be a bird watcher. Yeah. I'm a bird watcher. Doop a doop boop boo. Watching I enjoy them when they come around, you know? I love birds. They're yeah. They're fascinating. Ah! <laughs> okay. Uh last little bit about medicine. During the Revolutionary War, more soldiers died from disease than yeah. combat. And most died from their wounds rather than being killed immediately in battle. So you're on the battlefield, you get wounded, you're more likely to die later from complications of the wound than being killed instantly. Um, Just nasty. Yeah. Terrible. We're just not quite there yet with medicine, you know? So it's just like... Get those leeches. Well, and like they were during the Revolutionary War fighting, they were always like out of food and stuff. Right. And like cold and it just. Yeah. yeah. Lot of, lot of Miserable. Wars. Miserable. Not enough water. Not enough food. Not enough yes. rest. Not enough latrine space. Yeah. All gross. of it. Yeah. Sick. So smallpox is a huge concern Mm -hmm. at this time so much so that Washington George Washington had ordered an inoculation requirement in Mm -hmm. the years prior to 1781 according to encyclopedia.com quote this requirement is what they're talking about this was one of the first instances worldwide of that new common practice other diseases swept through 18th century army camps including diphtheria Dysentery, malaria, measles, and even scurvy. Does Surgery was primitive. <laughs> ah, does he have his dip tent? <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Um, wait, uh, so you're saying that George Washington was pro-vaccine made a vaccine mandate? Pro-vaccine. A vaccine mandate. A requirement for, yes, troops. Okay. Patriot troops in 1781. That doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so nasty. Yeah. Oh, so much. I mean, they knew enough to know that it worked. <sighs> yeah. People I mean, were the dying is not nasty. of smallpox. Like, then if you inoculate them, they don't die of smallpox. You know. Something, Oops. something like that. My microphone. All right. Continuing this quote, surgery was primitive and because of microbes and because microbes and sterilization were not yet understood, those who survived the shock and the bleeding risked lethal infections, end quote. Ew. Yeah. So if you get all hammered drunk on elderflower wine at the harp festival and gash your knee. Yep. You might actually die. You might die. You might die of your wounds. Take one of those harp strings and just, you know, <laughs> cut it off. Sew it up. Just, I, don't, I was just going to say, you know. I was cut off the limb. Just like. <laughs> at least she's got a scrape. We got to we got to yeah, amputate. Yeah, the bleeding with the harp. <laughs> What was the? What is that? Cat gut? <laughs> oh God, I don't know what harp strings were made of back then. Right? Who invented the harp anyway? One of the Marx Brothers, I think. <laughs> okay, so notable births, notable deaths. I looked through the entire list for 1781 and I had no fucking and idea who any of them were. you didn't even know a single person. I know. I was like, oh my god, did we even go to high school together? I don't think so. God. Who are you? I don't remember you. <laughs> so I picked a couple for each section that I thought seemed interesting. I, no, yeah, I didn't know, you wouldn't have known, well, maybe, I don't, maybe people out don't there might presume. have known. I don't know people from 1781, I might know <laughs> them. What are their names? Well. Are they from Hutch? Uh, no. Prussian state architect Carl Friedrich Schinkel was called a genius architect Sorry, notable births. This He was born in 1781. Okay. But Encyclopedia.com stated he was also, quote, an intellectual, a painter, stage designer, producer of panoramas, and a skilled draftsman, okay. end quote. So he's a, he's a Renaissance man in the 18th century. Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he died in 1841. Um, the... Second guy is Henry Cassini. He was a French botanist and naturalist specializing in the sunflower family. Aww. And literally the only reason I picked him is because the sunflower is the state flower of Kansas. He died in 1832. Notable deaths. Michaela Bastidas Puyukawa. This is a badass rebel She's a lady. Uh, she and her husband, Tupac Amaru II. Oh, yeah. The original Tupac. The OG yeah. Tupac. Um, Is that in Peru? Yeah. Together, they led a rebellion for Peruvian independence against the Spanish. And according to Wikipedia, they, 
quote, suffered martyrdom of execution by the Spaniards when the revolt failed. So they were both killed in 1781 by the Spanish. Yeah. Uh, that was interesting, too. Um, Peter Shemakers died in uh, 1781. He's a Flemish sculptor. He worked in the classicist style, and his work was a major influence on sculpture in England. He was born in 1691. Oh, my God. This man lived to 90 in 1781. Okay, so your story takes place in Vienna, Austria. I have a little bit about that, and then my location Vienna is the capital of the largest city in Austria. The Habsburgs' reign started there in 1278. Yeah. That's not the beginning of Vienna. It's just there's too fucking much to say about the history, so I started there. Um, It became the capital of the Holy Roman Empire from 1558 to 1806. The Austrian Empire from 1804 to 1867. A little bit of overlap on those two. And then after 1918, it was just the plain old capital of Austria. Boring. Yeah. Um, in 1783, which is close as I could get to our year, the population was recorded at 2,047... Sorry, 247,000... 753. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. Well, it is the largest city in Austria. Right. Um, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart arrived in Vienna from Salzburg in 1781. Yeah. And... This city historically was and continues to be a place that embraces and celebrates the arts. So, opera, theater, fine art, classical music, museums. They have a shit ton of museums. One site said over 100, which I think you would just have to move there. You'd have to live there to see even half of those museums. I know the people that live there never go to the museums. Probably not. <laughs> Maybe Austrians uh, are better than me. They oh, think they are. Yeah, I'm sure they visit some, but yeah, there's no way. Like, a hundred right. museums. Well, they probably work at the museum, so some of them have to go to the museum. Well, yeah. Uh, that's a lot of jobs. That's <laughs> a lot of jobs. It's a lot of docents and protection Museums are job agents. creators. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so as I do in every timeline twist, I'm, I try to get a snapshot of the location in the year that we're talking about. And I it was taking a little while, but I finally just Googled, um, I forget what I Googled, but I got like a bunch of doctoral dissertations, mm. <laughs> um, which I w- will not quote from because I don't even know what that legality is but I read through the synopsis of one of them and I'm just going to paraphrase but this is a dissertation by an LSU doctoral student in 1781 there's a new emperor in town he's called Joseph II and he was instrumental in reforming censorship in Vienna 
which brought on an era of enlightenment in the city. So censorship, censorship is relaxed and the public is flooded with access mm-hmm. to scholarly works of the previous centuries. So then I just looked up enlightenment um, definition. So Britannica.com defines enlightenment as, quote, a European intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, end quote. And <laughs> I broke this long quote up. Quote, it instigated revolutionary developments in art, philosophy, and politics. Central to Enlightenment thought were the mm-hmm. use and the celebration of reason. Right. That's the main thing about Enlightenment. So that's the power by which humans understand the universe and improve their own condition. The goals of rational humanity were considered to be knowledge, freedom, and happiness. End quote. So... Yeah, I feel like I'm pro-enlightenment. Um, there were a lot of positive things, I think, that came from that focus on reason. And um, there's a lot of idealism to it as well. Mm-hmm. And as I've been working on the timeline twist for this era, like it, it, it's also very to do. No, I mean, the Zodiac the, back. Your and story? My story. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Both, oh, sorry. Both of those, um, the Zodiac back in particular having to do with like, just like a foreshadowing, um, Pluto and Aquarius, Pluto and Aquarius. Yeah. It's, and it's I love, like so I interesting. I love this. I feel like we well, need another we enlightenment age. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean. Oh, good. Uh, there's shadow yes. side and there's there's high vibe of every kind of cycle, right? Like, yeah. Anyway, um, I love that you're covering this because uh, I think uh-huh. actually <laughs> it's great saving me some time from my story because I was going into a bunch <laughs> of enlightenment and the age of reason stuff because um, it's relevant to my story. So this is great. Oh, good. Okay. In the timeline twist, it has to be concise. But every time I get to your location and the year, I'm like, oh, uh, I'm going to see what she's doing. I didn't. But, yeah, I you always yeah. have a little bit of like a, oh, <laughs> when I start talking about your location. Um, and then just to end up on Vienna, I looked up what's on Atlas Obscura because it's a great website. So things you can see in Vienna the Habsburg, Habsburg Imperial Ooh. Crypt, which looks super cool. This is the final resting place of 143 Habsburg royal family members. The pictures just showed, showed a bunch of skeleton statues with crowns on them and yeah. a bunch of sarcophagi. There, there's also, yeah, I, well, I really want to go there someday. Um, there's a Viennese clock museum, which they describe as, quote, a small museum filled with over 1,000 clocks and one particular clock calibrated to run until the year 9,999. Oh my gosh, that's like the Y2K to end all. It's the Y10K. Fucking all the computers are going to break this. Yeah. Gosh, everything's going to break. Yeah. 
That was a wild time. Y2K. What is the word for that? Mm -hmm. Um, Underwhelming. Like, or like, there's another word. Yeah. 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 People were doomsday prepping and shit for that. It was wild. They don't know. Kids today. What about... Okay. Um, Two other museums that you can visit. (laughs) Well, there's a lot. Uh, So they have a globe museum. That one jumped out at me. And a museum of contraception and abortion. There's a museum. Also, the the last thing, and there is a picture, and it's super cute. Are you sure that wasn't Portland? Yeah. In 1781? Probably a lot Uh, of locations. (laughs) Oh, that wasn't there in 1781. These are modern things that you can go. I understand. (laughs) This is reaching for a joke so far. It's like, oh. Pardon my reach. So, well, it was the age of enlightenment. <laughs> I, I mean, grab that joke <laughs> that doesn't exist. Okay, my last picture. Um, yeah, if you that. can look, find yeah. the mural picture. But this is wolf and cow playing backgammon mural. And uh, Atlas Obscura says, "Quote: It's a silly medieval <laughs> mural preserved on the side of a it Viennese house." That's super cute. Okay, so, like I was saying, I did not, I'm, I'm done <laughs> trudging upstream in my life, so I went with a Revolutionary War story that will be next week, and it takes place Ooh. in Newtown, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so Newtown a is name. a borough like so of Bucks original. County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Newtown. <laughs> Newtown. Newton <laughs> was founded in 1684 by William Penn. So it's three years shy of being 100 years old during our year in 1781. Is the that first like recorded Sean, Sean Penn's brother? <laughs> yeah, Will, Willie Penn. Madonna's brother-in-law. He was in the 1781 Alex. stage version of uh, Footloose. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. They yeah. have a playbill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first recorded census on uh, Wikipedia in 1850, so it's just, that's where I got the info, as, <laughs> as you know, uh, counted 580 residents in Newtown. And the 2020 census, there were, there were 2,268, so small community. But influential in the Revolutionary War. So, again, a quote from Wikipedia, quote, Newtown was one of several towns that William Penn organized around Philadelphia to provide country homes for city Mm. residents and to support farming communities, end quote. Okay. Suburbia? Okay. Yeah. Country homes. And in 1781, Newtown was the county seat of Bucks County, and it saw some significant Revolutionary War action. My story next week will elaborate on that a little bit. 
Uh, also from Wikipedia, quote, after his December 26th, 1776 morning march to Trenton and before the Battle of Princeton, Continental Army Commander-in-Chief George Washington made his headquarters in Newtown, end quote. So he wow. was hanging around. He was hanging around Newtown. I just, I don't know. Fucking, ugh. I don't like George Washington. I mean, <laughs> there, I said it. Like, I don't care for him. And like, every time <laughs> I hear about him, I'm just like, <laughs> gag me. He sounds like a, I don't want to, I don't. And I feel that way about a lot of our founding fathers. And I know that that's well, getting yeah. canceled in some people's mind. But like. It's really yeah. hard for me to... I have a strong, strong reaction. So. That's fair. I don't give a crap if he was in Newtown. Like, that makes... I'm like, <laughs> okay, Newtown, do you have a stack of three ships? Do you have a ball of twine? No, just George Washington came here one time? Well, Whatever. you're not going to like the next... You're not. You're not going to visit... Washington Crossing Historic Park. <laughs> oh, hell no. You can't pay me to do that. I dare you to pay me enough money to want to do that. I'm going to take you there and then play Top Gun for you. Oh, my God. I thought we were friends, but like, it's like you don't even no, understand never, me never. at all. <laughs> no. You don't get me. I would go there if it were to, you know, like put on a farcical reenactment of some George Washington buffoonery. I'd do that. I mean, that would be fun. He could be my I... second clown character. I have a Madonna-based clown <laughs> character named Mad Anya. And... <laughs> I don't really have a stance on Washington. I could give or take him. Yeah, he's not something I really think about. Well... Yeah. I beg to differ. You've just been talking about it for the last five minutes. <laughs> Nonstop. <laughs> and I'm going to next week, too. <laughs> I feel bad for him because I know his teeth hurt. Like, that I get. Like, that's cool. And I appreciate that he didn't just, like, no, but he also grab had... onto power and, like, say, okay, I'll have as many terms as president as I want. Like, he, well, you know, established We could whatever. give him that, I guess. He also yeah, had slave that. teeth. Ventures. I know, but he grew hemp. So Oh, that's a pro. Yeah, like there's like <laughs> two things in the pro column yeah. and then a bunch of propaganda and then like a million things in the negative column, but also Yeah, I yeah, fuck him. He's on the dick list. Oh let's call <laughs> it. You. Let's call that's it. That's all I was asking for. I was yeah. just like, is he gonna get on the dick list? I He's... mean it seems like if Brigham Young is on the dick list, George Washington should be on the dick list. I well this week he's at the top <laughs> slot until we we'll see. He he, so, he Yeah, I mean he outdicked like, Brigham Young. Slippery slots. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, does he do a dick move in your story? I hope so. Don't no, spoil it for no, me. Don't tell no, me. No, no, I'm just saying. Uh, I, I don't know. This could get too convoluted, but I think it would be hilarious if we kept a top slot of the dick list. And <laughs> someone could be maybe like eight weeks on the top of the dick list until somebody new comes along. Gosh, Something it's to so think hard about. to rank them, though. I know. 
Yeah, we need somebody else. Somebody else out there. Start I start the dick list. I, we didn't start this podcast to be measuring dicks. Okay, so like, <laughs> that's not what it means. It's like the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> okay. Uh, I ha- this is a quote actually about Washington, so just la 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 your way through it. <laughs> so, from visitpa.com, quote, nearby Washington Crossing offers plenty of historic landmarks, some dating back to the birth of this nation. Stand in the footsteps of General George Washington at the site where he crossed the Delaware River on Christmas night, 1776, in Washington Crossing Historic Park. End quote. The original 11 streets of Newtown were named for British royalty, but after the Revolutionary War, the names were changed to honor Revolutionary War heroes. I'm not going to list them, but they did list some sites for a walking tour. This same site, NewtownHistoric.org. Lots of inns, lots of taverns. Some of the inns were taverns. And I did read during my research that taverns at the time were also used as meeting places and people conducted business there frequently. I'm, yeah. I'm all for that. If you right, can do business like at the, a tavern. The, the English pub kind of yeah. vibe where it's like it's the gathering spot, the social mm-hmm. hangout, the intergenerational Seems great. Spot. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. So, some of the ones that they listed, yeah, if you're in Newtown, you can visit the Court Inn, a.k.a. the Half Moon Inn or Thornton's Tavern, uh, the Joseph Warstall House, which I just added because he was a, the cord waner. Wow. And we learned in our 1856 show that that was, they call it a leather worker on this website. I call it a shoemaker, but same, same. Right. You can also had access to leather, which you can boil and mix with your flour paste to make a well-rounded meal. That's exactly. (laughs) In an emergency, raid the corn cordwainer shop. Cordwainer got that leather. Got that good leather. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Whitehall Hotel, which is a has a cameo in my story next week. Also, they have the Bird in Hand Tavern, the Justice House, which used to be a tavern, and the Black Horse Tavern. My. Love a good tavern. There's like 2,000 people in this town, and they have 18 taverns. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's my I kind mean, of town. Let's no go. Judgment, but they might have a problem. Like <laughs> a lot of taverns. How many churches? Who am I to judge? How many deist churches? Let them have? attend the tavern, do their business okay. there, and carouse until the sun comes up. Oh yeah, sure, sure. So yeah, that's it. That's the 1781 timeline twist. Let us know, though, if you've been to any of those taverns or those places in Vienna. 
Let, I thought you were going to say, let us know if you've been to 1781 or like if you have memories. <laughs> let us know if you've been to 1781. If you've got time, like, you know, mm-hmm. memories. Mm-hmm. from your time travels if yeah. you're a doctor who our email uh, is you ain't a woofin at gmail.com yeah um fun 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 fact uh this week i heard my first uh like i thought you said your name was about our podcast um mm-hmm. and somebody thought once i explained what our name was and what it where it came from they were like oh well, that makes more sense than you ain't a muffin. And <laughs> I just, like, love that. And so I just want to keep a list of all the yeah. names that our podcast is not Yeah, <laughs> we're not super searchable. But that's okay. Yes, but we're highly unique. Um, anyway, well, great timeline twist. Yeah, uh, what a strange you. time. It is really interesting. Um, and I love the... Um. Yeah, yeah. It seemed I seemed like it was a time that was like kind of like a changing time. Like there was like some old stuff, like some outdated stuff, and then also some age of reason and like trying to move forward stuff. But also, like a lot of and all around the world, there's just like monarchies being uprooted, pretty much. And new power structures coming into form. Yeah. Um, this is a strange time. The Articles of Confederation, you know, that entered into force. And I kind of think my favorite is all the cataloging, the scientific. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm loving those guys that are just nerding out about the (laughs) astronomical objects and the birds. Right. Right. Well, it's... like the first industrial revolution, so yeah. there's all these new technologies the there. The Iron uh-huh. Bridge, yeah, right. That's and cool too. I was learning about the like telescopes at the time and mirrors, Ooh. and like the technology of creating mirrors is really interesting. Oh yeah, that's like um, what sorcery is this? Yeah, and people had to, you know. It, the modern mirror wasn't invented until the silvered mirror until I think that 1830s. I don't quote me on that, but like much later. Oh, um, but they had processes of making mirrored substances and that's what they used to create these telescopes. And Oh my gosh. Every yeah. time we end one of these, I'm like, Oh, I need to research this now. Like last know. time you were like TV dinners. And I was like, I need to know. <laughs> uh, should exactly. we get to your story yeah let's transition to the next segment um nice work that was very fun thank you the tale of a famous the most famous duel of 1781 and I know that we learned in one of our earlier episodes that 
like the last duel took place in somewhere around the 1850s, right? It was uh, the last notable duel. I, be, I believe it was 1859. Okay. So 1781, it's prime, prime time duels. Right. Duels were, yeah, duels. Yeah. Um, so. Love this, it. Oh, my yeah, God. I'm a so duel. excited. A tale of a duel. <laughs> On Christmas Eve... 1781, in the tradition of gladiators and knights of old, and at the behest of the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, for the entertainment of the visiting dignitary Duchess Fyodorovna of Russia, there occurred a famous duel officially resulting in a tie. (gasps) Wait! Oh, so many thoughts already. I just mentioned Joseph the second and Yes. Very this important. Was for entertainment for a guest? Yes. To the city? Yes. Gross. The first published account of the duel didn't appear until eighteen twenty seven. <gasps> Side note on gladiators. <sighs> What does gladiator mean? I was like, yeah. Well, I'm writing this and I'm like throwing around because it's like Holy Roman Empire, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, glad it's like gladiator. Like, let's, what does that actually mean? Um, It means what you think it means. It's Latin gladiator, swordsman from gladius sword was an armed combatant who entertained audiences in the Roman Republic and Roman Empire in violent confrontations with other gladiators, wild animals, and condemned criminals. Uh, Some gladiators were volunteers who risked their lives and their legal and social standing by appearing in the arena. And most were despised as slaves, schooled under harsh conditions, and socially marginalized and segregated even in death. So some of these gladiators were just, like, kind of bred. Uh, Uh, Anyway, uh it's super gross, but this was a major form of entertainment. Um, Irrespective of their origin, gladiators offered spectators an example of Rome's martial ethics, and in fighting or dying well, they could inspire admiration and popular acclaim. Ooh, all of it. Ooh. Like... Yeah. And the origin of uh, gladiatorial combat is open to debate, but, like, it goes back at least to about the 3rd century BCE, and then continued for about a thousand years. <laughs> the peak was in the first and second century, uh, uh, first century yeah. BC to the second century AD. Um, and then it kind of it diminished, and then was like uh, outlawed by the Christians by around four hundred AD. Well, good. But I know, right? Like Christians did something right for once. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Tell me. One, so, anyway, one check mark for Christians. Also, it's not super relevant to our case, but um, I just got like interested in a like side spur about what are gladiators, um, 
So, what's your question? Well, I do, it's a comment, but it just makes me think of when, like, people of my parents' generation are like, the world's going to hell. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we don't do this anymore. No, it's literally just so uh, totally horrific it's low 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 vibe humanity yeah and it also it makes me think about like things like american gladiator and how we like words (laughs) get thrown around and it's like what what does it actually mean which is like why i dug into this i was like what is a gladiator and that's super sad it kind of like made me cry actually and and then i thought about like how i've attended two different schools in my life that had a mascot of a crusader and like yeah, our high school. I was in my twenties oh. when I we discovered actually what that means, and like, I was just like, ah, <laughs> out damn spot, like I'm tainted anyway. So this is yeah, that's what I mean by gladiators. Anyway, but this is 1781. Not glad. Not glad. No. Uh, no, not even like a trash bag. Um, by 1781, we've reached the age of enlightenment, and the battleground was somewhat different. Thank the heavens. Yeah. We're in the age of enlightenment, and I actually had um, that exact same quote from Britannica about the oh. about enlightenment that you shared in the timeline twist, so I won't Twitter. share it again yeah. here, but... Um, I want to give a little introduction to the first combatant, the first gladiator in this duel, um, whose name was Muzio Filippo Vincenzo Francesco Saviero Clementi, and he was born on January 23rd, 1752, and he lived until March 10th, 1832. <laughs> Are he you going to call him that the whole time? I might. Uh, he was an Italian British composer, virtuos- virtuoso pianist, pedagogue, conductor, music publisher. Very important. Music publisher was like okay. a kind of, um, he was in, that was an important part of his legacy, editor and piano manu- manufacturer, which is also another very important part of his legacy. And he was mostly active in England. So he was born in Rome, but. Um, mm-hmm lived the most of his like adult uh, professional life in uh, based in England encouraged okay. to study music by his father he was sponsored as a young composer by Sir Peter Beckford who took him to England to advance his studies and that basically entailed um, this was kind of the the style of the time like rich people would sponsor yeah musicians mm-hmm. or playwrights or poets or whatever and they're kind of indentured to these uh sponsors and so he got to study music but he also had to perform music right on command okay. all the time yeah. So, I'm going to teach you, but I also yeah. own you. And he was very young when he went to England to to do I mean like I can't remember how young he was, but mm-hmm. Not a, not an adult. Um, anyway, later he toured Europe numerous times from his long-standing base in London. Um, so he would 
he became known as a he was a well-known pianist and composer and he would go on these musical tours um like much like the music festivals that were originating at this time the musical tour was also a thing um and he started a three-year or three-hour tour of (laughs) europe from london in 1780 um, and he, okay. so he set forth in like May of 1780 and he, from England and was on the continent and spent like a year in Paris, I think, and played for me and Marie Antoinette and, oh, or maybe right. didn't, I don't know. That was, I didn't get into the, all that, but rumors. Yeah. He specifically came to Vienna because he heard about the visit of um, the Grand Duke Paul of Russia and the Grand Duchess Maria Fyodorovna, um, who were good job, who were visiting the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. Mm-hmm. Clementi heard that they were in town and um, specifically went to Vienna in hopes of Two. being. To, okay. to gain their audience because this was kind of like That's a big the, deal. the scene. Yeah. Like, and he was known as a great pianist and he was, um, established. Right. But he was yeah. also still looking for more patronage and, and he, really, he wanted to be an influencer. He's on tour to promote himself. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he was too old to be a toddler influencer, but yeah. we're still waiting to hear. You're a little bit late. I'm going to say that I, this past week, I did meet a lot of preschool influencers. Okay. (laughs) It does exist. If they're not already, they should be. Yeah. So Vienna in the 1780s, like as you uh, alluded to in the timeline twist, was kind of a hub of the arts. Yeah. And like it's the seat of this, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. Joseph the second. Joseph II. Uh-huh. Holy Roman Empire. Neither holy nor Roman nor <laughs> Empire discussed. Like, but seriously, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> like, because uh yeah, because Vienna is not Rome, right? Mm. But okay, right. so the Holy Roman Empire, also known as the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation after 1512 was mm-hmm. a polity in Central and Western Europe, usually headed by the Holy Roman Emperor. Okay, so... A polity. A polity, yes. Okay. Like a political entity. Oh, it developed okay. in the early Middle Ages and lasted yeah. for almost 1,000 years until its dissolution in 1806. So, like, very... Yeah. Coming up real soon... During yeah. the Depo- Napoleonic Wars. I had that in my timeline twist. Yeah, right. You did. Yes. Yeah. And okay. so um, the Holy Roman Emperor was originally and officially the Emperor of the Romans during the Middle Ages and also known as the Roman German Emperor since the early modern period. This title was held in conjunction with the title of the King of Italy from the 8th to 16th century, and then almost without interruption with the title of the King of Germany throughout the 12th to 18th centuries. 
So that's the time period we're talking about where the Holy Roman Empire Emperor is the same as the King of Germany. So many kings. I know. And I love, like, um, the, in Latin, Imperator Romanorum, and in, in German, it's the Kaiser der Romer. It's like, <laughs> it is like so. Rex Italia. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, the final emperors were from the House of the Habsburg Lorraine from 1765 to 1806, as you mentioned in the timeline twist. And so Joseph II is obviously part of that, those line of uh, Habsburgs. Yeah, I want to say it with a P every time. Uh Uh-huh. And it's a B. I know. Habsburgs. Habsburgs. So... This is fun. Joseph II, in German, Joseph Benedictum Don Michael Adam. And in English, Joseph Benedict Anthony Michael Adam. Anthony Michael <laughs> Adam. <laughs> Joseph Benedict Anthony Michael Adam. He was born on, like, this I find is interesting. Like, he's born on March 13th, 1741, which is, like, 40 years before Uranus is discovered. But anyway, and then he lived until 1790. Um, So he didn't live much longer than, than nine years after our year, after this story. That's the emperor? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The um, doctoral dissertation that I read said the era of enlightenment did go from 81, 1781 to 90. So nine years. So I I just thought that jumped out at me because that's when Joseph, Mm -hmm. Joey too died. Joey too. Jojo. Yeah. (laughs) Jojo (laughs) Ness. Joseph Benedict Anton Michael Adam Jonas. (laughs) If I knew any of their songs, I would sing it. I know. I I hope they become a sponsor. (laughs) Sponsor us, Joe Jonas. We mention you in every episode. It's so funny how, like, our subconscious leanings come out through this podcast, because I had no idea how to think about the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't. No, I'm this. the one that keeps bringing it up. <laughs> I don't understand. I got stuck in a rut. Anywho. <laughs> anyway, um, this guy, Joseph Benedict Anton Michael Matt Adam. Joey Habsburg. Too. Joey oh. too. He was the Holy Roman Emperor from August 18th, 1765. And then he became the sole ruler when his mother died in November, at the end of November in 1780. So just before our year, he had be recently okay. just become sole ruler. But he was I didn't actu- know he was a Habsburg. I, I guess okay. he is. Yes, he was the eldest son of Empress Maria Theresa and her husband, Emperor Francis the First. He was the brother of Marie Antoinette, Leopold the Second, 
I Maria Caroline of Austria and Maria Amalia, Duchess of Parma. And I'm like, I just want some chicken parm every time I read Duchess right. of Parma. I also need he, a family tree. Like, this is... I know. No, I wasn't going to include all that, but you asked. Yeah. So now you know. But he was... Um, <laughs> Fuck around, was, you find out. Yes. Oh, my God. I saw the worst decal on a car earlier today <laughs> with a stick figure humping the word around <laughs> and then it said find out no that's yeah. not necessary i know that's... it's like that's the only thing i know about you now <laughs> this is the your whole identity to me is this uh-huh. one decal on your car i'm not impressed anyway <laughs> listen my story is going to take a long time but it's not my fault <laughs> <laughs> you fuck around well, it's going to take a while because we're talking about Parmesan. And we're talking about fuck around, find out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Joseph too. I was like, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. He was a proponent of enlightened, enlightened absolutism, which I'm going to give a brief description of yeah, later. I, it has to that. do with the Enlightenment era, but enlightened absolutism was also called enlightened despotism and it refers to the conduct and policies of european absolute monarchs during the 18th and early 19th centuries who influenced by the ideas of enlightenment um but they were espousing these ideals of enlightenment to enhance their power and the concept was basically like hey we're it was new and it was novel, but it was like monarchs are ruling with the well-being of their people in mind. And it's like, it also has to kind of do with like being divinely inspired, but... Mm-hmm. Oh, right. You know, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Yeah. The PR spin is that I also care about you guys. An enlightened absolutist absolutist is a non-democratic or authoritarian leader who exercises their political power based upon the principles of the Enlightenment. Enlightened monarchs distinguish themselves from ordinary rulers, ordinary rulers, like that's an oxymoron to me, mm-hmm. by claiming to rule for their subjects' well-being, right? So they're, they're claiming that they're just applying the principles of reason to... In better their subjects. Right. But they... Yeah. Yeah. But they also believe that they're divinely chosen by God Correct. to yeah. be Yeah, they recognize that they are destined king. to rule. Yeah. Yeah. Very common theme amongst, like, royalty. Like, I was... Yeah. Yeah, by divine right. But some good things, like, they... Played a part, and Joseph II was integral in this in the absolution or the abolition of serfdom in Europe. Well, good and on so, you, like, Joey, too. Yeah, he had some kind of high minded ideals, and like I think he was a little inept at enacting them. And his some of his so his foreign policy resulted in some isolation and stuff, but he. Like, he had in mind to advance society, and he was progressive in what he was wanting to do with the power that he was had been invested in him. 
Well, okay. Overall, as far as I know, good. Like, I won't go into it because it'll make it way too long, but he had a pretty tragic um, life, as many people did during this time period, Mm -hmm. but just, like, considering loss of children and wives and sickness and, you know, that kind of stuff, he had some stuff in his personal life that was very, very tragic, and he, uh, by all accounts, was, like, a caring... A caregiver, at least, to to one of his spouses as as she was ill and dying. So, anyway. Oh, okay. he, he got some points from me. Uh, he's a despot by his own definition, so also that. <laughs> okay. But one thing about him is that he was a patron of the arts, and that has to do with the Enlightenment. The Focus on reason and... Um, he was a big supporter of and patron of a couple of composers, notably Antonio Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Um, he, Joseph II, died with no surviving offspring and was succeeded oh. by his younger brother, Leopold II. So just... Okay to kind of finish Leo. up his little B.O. in there. But, um, yes. In May of 1781, Mozart had been living in Salzburg, and he was able to, by May of 1781, get himself released from his employment, um, which was no small ordeal. He apparently had to, like turn his resignation in and then keep coming back with letters and memoranda and like it was just became annoying enough that his um, he was in some sort of like contract about being a court composer or something but Mm. he didn't want to he that's where he grew up he didn't want to be there Um, in 1780 he had had a his first major opera published okay. and so he was kind of like itching to get out under the shackles of like basically a bad record contract yeah <laughs> and um <laughs> so he made himself a pain in the ass and he like got let go um and he went wheel <laughs> yeah he went to vienna because that was this hub mm-hmm. of um right and very quickly said about kind of being a freelance musician and getting himself in front of people and trying to make a name for himself and a reputation um, on the scene. And he was he was still up and coming. Uh, Mozart is actually busking, about f- busking on street corners. Sure, and I don't know. Like they had all <laughs> these other weird kind of arrangements, but yeah, basically, <laughs> seems like. Um, Let me pull my piano. Mozart is four (laughs) years, almost exactly four years younger than Clementi, just for reference. Wait, that's the dude at the top that has like 18 names? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Clementi is the guy who, um, the first gladiator I mentioned, who was the Italian-born but lived in Britain 
And like, yeah. And he had set out on this three year tour of Europe and ended up in Vienna. He came to Vienna specifically in December of 1781 because he heard that the, um, The Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II was hosting these the dignitaries Russian. from Russia. The Russians, yes. The Russians. And so he was there in town hoping to gain an audience with them. Mozart had been in Vienna since May of that year and was, you know, moving around town and, you know, trying to make a scene. Um. Like you do when you're Mozart. (laughs) I feel like I have not actually seen all of the movie Amadeus, and I probably should have watched that for this episode. I didn't, so sorry. I do remember when it was a thing, and like everyone was talking about it, but... Oh, yeah. 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 It made me go, like this in my head, it made me go... Amadeus and Uranus, Amadeus, Amadeus and Uranus. I was literally thinking of that song. Amadeus, 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 Amadeus. Oh, 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 and Uranus. So, Mozart's been in Vienna since May of 1781. um, Mm -hmm. And he receives an invitation to play for the emperor on December 24th, 1781. Clementi also receives an invitation to play at court for that same date. Oh, Joey too is double booking. That's a Brady Bunch episode. I know, right? <laughs> I have two dates for one night. Neither Mozart nor Clementi actually knew that they were slated to compete against each other. Did they know each other? Do you know that? Do you know if they... I think they knew of each other. Right. For sure. Okay. I mean, Clementi was well known, and Mozart was becoming well known. Okay. I'm sure they knew of each other. Right. Um, and... It, I'm sure Clementi knew. Um, so neither Mozart nor Clementi knew that they were slated to compete against each other. Joseph II, however, had informed his guests, who were eagerly placing bets on the outcome. No! What? What? Cle- Clementi? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... These rich and assholes. Joseph II... <laughs> had a wager, a side wager with the Grand Duchess, who was a big music fan, and Joseph II was wagering on um, Mozart, and uh, the Grand Duchess was betting on Clementi, and Clementi, being from Rome, was Italian, right? Mm -hmm. And also, like, was seen as kind of representing Papal sure. authority, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? That Pope. kind of right. So, yeah. So, anyway, here the battle begins. Clementi described his first impression of Mozart this way. Oh shit! 
Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> On entering the Emperor's music room, I found there someone whom, because of his elegant appearance, I took for one of the Emperor's chamberlains. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a shade. But scarcely had we begun a conversation when we soon recognized each other as Mozart and Clementi. Oh, well, okay. So, it's okay. Mozart picks up the story from there. The Emperor, after Clementi and I had paid each other enough compliments, declared that Clementi should play first. La Santa Chiesa Catolica. Let us hear from the Catholic Church, he said, okay. as Clementi is from Rome. He improvised and played a sonata. Clementi played his sonata in B-flat major, opus 24, number 2. It is a fluent, glittering, virtuosic piece. It lacks Mozart's trademark melodic grace and harmonic imagination, but then again, so does everyone else's music, says this one writer. Uh, following Clementi's performance, it was Mozart's turn, writes Mozart. The emperor said to me, allons, off you go. I improvised in turn and played some variations. The variations Mozart refers to were improvised on a theme provided to him by the emperor or one of his guests. It was a march from the opera The Samnite Marriage, composed in 1776 by the French composer André Guetry. We know this because sometime during the next couple of days, Mozart sat down and wrote out a theme and variations from piano piece based on a march by from Getri, the Samonite marriage. Mozart's notated variations are very close, if not an exact replica of what he improvised that evening. He's playing a and cover. He, no, he's taking he he's covering playing, this dude. It's like improv Olympics <laughs> where like the elites are shouting out they're shouting out like, "Hey, play! This is a theme from this oh, opera," they're and they're like improvising. Mozart. Yes. <laughs> so they're bird. giving both. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. It's okay, a battle okay. of the bands <laughs> on oh, no. dueling pianos. Seventeen eighty-one. Battle of the yeah. bands. Okay. But like, this is crazy to me. Like, uh, Mozart. The next day was able to write down all of the improvis improvisations that he had done the night before. Like, well, he was that's a just genius. like genius. Yeah, yeah. It's like, ugh, God. that's intense. And this is in Mozart's voice again. The Grand Duchess produced some sonatas by Paisello, which illeg were illegibly written in his own hand. I had to sight read the first movement, Allegro's, from them, after which Clementi sight read the second movement, Andante's, and the third movement, Rondo's. I have it from a very good source that the Emperor was very pleased with me. Mozart's reputation was on the line, and he knew it, and he was correct. The emperor was very pleased with his performance. So they had the, this piano battle. Um, so they're both on, the, like, a same... Like, they're both on the stage? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you more background okay, about what okay. these kind of contests were <laughs> like. Getting, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the, officially, the contest was declared a draw, 
and the prize money of 100 ducats was split between Mozart and Clementi. The emperor awarded Mozart his 50 ducats, and the grand duchess awarded Clementi his 50 ducats. But privately, the emperor collected on his bet with the grand duchess. We don't know how much they bet, um, but it galled her because she had to admit that Mozart was better than Clementi. Like... And Mozart and Clementi themselves, like, concluded that after the after the duel. Um, No doubt Clementi was relieved to have survived his Viennese trial by fire. Certainly, he was by far more more gracious of the competitors and gladly admitted to having been entranced by Mozart's playing. He later wrote. Until then, I had never heard anyone play with so much spirit and grace. And then Mozart, on the other hand, about Clementi said, uh, Clementi doesn't have a Kreutzer's worth of taste or feeling. In a word, he's a mere mechanic or robot is the other translation. Mm. I don't know what a Kreutzer is. I didn't look it up. I don't care. But anyway, (laughs) he was just saying he was just mechanical in his playing. and He didn't have any musicality. Domo arigato. Um, See, exactly. Mr. Roboto. Given the musical politics at the time, we suspect that had Clementi been of Austrian descent, Mozart would have managed to find rather more to like about his playing and music. So that's kind of gross, but like... yeah. 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 Um, and if you're interested, and I don't know, maybe I'll be able to put in a little musical interlude here. Um, we'll see. But um, we, I will put a link to... There are many recreations of this musical battle that you can like, <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. listen to. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's sort of fascinating. So it's like a thing that piano nerds do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I love a good yeah. nerd. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's <laughs> some more of what Mozart had to say. Clementi is a charlatan like all Italians. He marks <gasps> a piece presto but plays only a reg- allegro. <laughs> oh. I know. He might be on the dick list because guess. like. Stop short. <laughs> Yet apparently Mozart did remember the opening theme of Clementi's Opus Twenty Four Number Two as he, which is what Clementi played to out at the outset of this duel. Okay, he Mozart quote unquote borrowed it ten years later for his oh, overture shit. to Zauberflute, and um, and then Clementi went on to like consistently mention like. Yeah, mine came out ten years before, <laughs> yeah. and so like, just like that's not a good look either. But like, copyright, anyway. bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> but they were, you know, they had a cordial relationship after that. Um, Did they? They after yeah, the shit that Mozart said. There's no evidence that they had any sort of like actual animosity. Um, they agreed afterward that M- Mozart had won. Clementi wrote what he what I said earlier about uh-huh. him, and you know, um, yeah, uh, Mozart wrote some nice things about Clementi. Maybe he was just good a technique bad day. or whatever. 
No, I think he was just like a ego maniac. Well, uh, basically, <clears throat> is basically, is basically. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so that's basically the story of this very famous duel. Um, it was declared a tie. Nobody got hurt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it is sort of mysterious because the first published account of it didn't appear until 1827. Oh, that's right. You said eight, what? 18. 18- 1827, uh, it appeared in this uh, small book, and um, there's a letter that Mozart wrote um, that day to... uh, There's a letter that Clementi wrote that day, and there's a letter... There's some letters that Mozart wrote up until, like, I don't know, like, January or February of the next year, and... He sort of goes into detail in one instance. Um, but the person who published this book in 1827 actually knew Mozart in Vienna during that time. And so that's where a lot of this account comes from. And I think he had actually knew Mozart and actually was, you know, kind of in the scene. And so... Um, there's some other later criticism of that account and other people have like imagined all kinds of different things, but, um, nobody really knows how much money was bet by those elites and stuff, but. Is that why it was buried or? (sighs) You know, it's, I thought it was just such an odd thing and I thought, it just seems strange to me, like it. With, like, the Age of Enlightenment, that lens being placed on it, but this it's still, like, called the Holy Roman Emperor Empire, right? Yeah. And, like, I thought that's that what made me weird. think about gladiators, and I was like, this they're in this arena, in this duel, and, like, sure, they don't die, but is this just the new iteration? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these musicians are at the beck and call of their their patrons, and um, yeah, yeah, I just thought it was like some interesting parallels and like how yeah, when when diff, when themes come up in different times in history, it, maybe there is progress in that we can yeah. have a West Side Story kind of battle and not a yeah. <laughs> right, um, but I I just thought it was like fascinating. Anyway, I wanted to learn more about what is like. Is this a thing that um, was this a thing? Was this a normal thing? Was a piano duel a thing? And then right. when did that start? Yeah. So, from Pianist Magazine, the history of piano duels, duels such as these this frequently occurred across Europe. Mozart famously battled with Clementi, the resulting concluding rather blandly that both what? were excellent pianists. Privately, however, blah, 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 that's just about more of that, but um, this was a common thing. So, rap battles were born in 1781. Yeah. Totally. Right? And then I, it made me think about, like, dueling pianos 
like that dueling piano bar kind of culture. And oh, so yeah. Well, and dueling banjos is a thing. And dueling banjos, right? And then battle of the bands, right? So, it's kind of the evolution of this. <laughs> Competitive music. <laughs> I somehow. have no idea. Clementi was a really interesting figure. He went on to live quite a while longer. Mozart only lived about 10 more years. I think he died in 1791. Oh, shit. So, okay. <clears throat> and he was 25 in 81. So he was very oh. young when he passed away. But Clementi lived a long time, and as a piano maker and a music publisher, he had a great impact, and he was known as the father of the pianoforte, or the modern piano as we know it, and he also published a ton of music, and it's kind of like we were talking about, like, chefs or whatever, like... Oh, yeah, men. Like, composers were men, but in this period... um. And moving forward, the consumers of sheet music were women, primarily women. And one of the things that Clementi did was um, kind of complicate the sheet music that was available. He Because before that, it was just very simple and, and meant to be sight-read by somebody with no skill, mm. right? And the end it was thought to be kind of showing off if you're putting too many, too much into your okay. whatever, yeah. as I understood it. So, but he was like, he, he just, you know, made available transcriptions of lots of famous composers music for, um, yeah, for distribution for players Regular you know, home, yeah, regular people to play, which were primarily women, and um, like he had a very big impact on kind of the, I don't know, the feminization of music or whatever. Wow. Um, yeah, so he was all right. Um, there was I did find a letter that he had written, um, the letter he wrote on. December 24th, 1781 was up for auction at Christie's and like sold for like 3,000 pounds or something like that. But it was very interesting. Um, And yeah, and then I don't think, basically nobody ever really heard from Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart after that. So that was basically, nobody really knows what happened to him. After 1781. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Oh, I was like, um... (laughs) Just kidding. He got famous. Um... (laughs) Yeah. He just... He just, like... Obscurity. Like, Sean Spicered right into those bushes, and (laughs) nobody could see him. Anyway, that's my story from mm. 1781. It's a duel, but nobody it, died. That's that's like the best kind of duel. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, sharing their gifts. Humans are at their best when they share their gifts. Yeah, and these duels, like, I think sounds super hilarious. Like, 
It's yeah. totally like a cipher, like modern, you know, like rap battle. It's like, <laughs> you know, first like uh, Clemente plays his like showpiece. He's been on tour for like eighteen months, and so he's got you know, he's yeah, like, my he's Opus Twenty Four. Yeah, yeah. And then Mozart's like, oh, okay, well, I just memorized your whole thing, and I'm going to do variations on it, and then I'm going to play it upside down. And, and <laughs> Clemente's like, I'm trying to keep up. And then like people are shouting out, like, play th- this theme from this opera. And it's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I can't play piano. My version of it is like the guy from... Sesame Street, where he just pounds his face into the key. <laughs> <laughs> That's as far as I got. Chopsticks. Well, I hope you don't get called into a <laughs> battle to the death on keys. That's gonna suck. Yeah, well, I just would bow out completely. Yeah. But what can you do? Yeah, I like that kind of duel. Yeah. 1781, man. Like, battles of ideas, I think. Yeah, I love the whole Enlightenment shit. I feel like uh-huh. we need that. I feel like we really need that. I'm a little bit terrified about 2024. <sighs> Election year. It's going to be tough. Oh, yeah. It's not going to be... Uh, I mean... Great but time to start a podcast. It is, but you know, like, I'm not, I know it's not the Zodiac back, but 1781 was Pluto and Aquarius. 2024 is the beginning of Pluto and Aquarius. I know, that's the return. That's what I'm so, afraid of. No, but, like, enlightenment is also, you Part know, of revolution and enlightenment. Okay. They both okay. happen. That makes me feel better. Yeah, feel better. I have a good... I'm super excited about my story for next week. Um, I had a whole other thing in mind for like three weeks and then just stumbled upon something that I feel like it's going to be really fun. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So next week... We will continue. Yeah. Stay tuned. Tune in next week. My the, story uh, and the Zodiac, Zodiac book. All right. Yeah. Good job, Amy Joe. Thanks. Thanks. We'll see you guys next week. You Ain't a Woofin' is brought to you by 4702 Productions. Thank you for listening. If you have comments, story ideas, or would like to reach out, email us at youain'tawoofin' at gmail.com. Everything you need to know can be found at youain'tawoofin'pod.com. All art and design by Valerie. All music and editing by Amy Joe. We are a 100% independent podcast. Support us on Patreon at You Ain't a Woofin' Pod. Also, please rate, review, share, and subscribe. 
We love you, and we ain't a woofin'.